May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. Today, I am joined by a return visitor, my partner, Roxanne Levine, who runs our immigration process, practice. How are you doing, Roxanne? I'm good, Rich. How are you today? I'm good. Apparently, you run our immigration process practice, as I just accidentally called it. <laughs> you are here today to talk about what is happening with immigration law in the United States with the change of administration that was effective in January of this year, right? I am happy to have a nice conversation with you about that. We've experienced the greatest sea change in the immigration law world in the last four years, and we're now seeing another sea change. So it's literally like whiplash every week for our practice and, you know, keeping up on the significant changes that have gone on since 2015, 16, and now again, is literally a full-time job for all of us. (laughs) I'm sure. Let's start generally, and then maybe we can get more specific as we get into it. What are the general propositions that the Biden administration intends to carry out over the next four years? Okay, so I think the first thing to understand is just the framework that the Biden administration is setting and setting up their table for the immigration laws and changes, their philosophy is a bit different than the prior administration. Just to give you, again, a a broader parameter understanding, the immigration laws themselves have not changed since the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952. And so our point of reference is really the communist era, way back when. So there have been certain laws, legislative changes, fixes, But I would say since 1952, we're still dealing with this antiquated system. So also the language of that law from 1952. So one big thing that the Biden administration introduced was something called the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021. And they basically say, let's reframe everything. We're not going to call foreign nationals aliens. We're going to call them. This will be the first really major retooling of the immigration laws in almost 60 years. Big time. If it passes right, right. now. If it passes well, that's through, always an open question. But tell me what they have in mind. They have in mind is, uh, again, setting the table, the framework. You're not going to be calling foreign nationals aliens. You're going to be calling them non-citizens. In the past, the way the Democrats and Republicans have always discussed immigration reform was a quid pro quo. If we give immigration benefits, well, then we have to have an enforcement tool to back that up. In 1986, the Reagan administration introduced IRCA, Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. On the one hand, there was something called amnesty that under Ronald Reagan, three million undocumented illegal immigrants were allowed to adjust status to permanent residence in exchange for border enforcement, I-9, which is confirmation of alien status, ability to work. There was a quid pro quo between the enforcement arms and the benefit arms. So basically that the Democrats have tried, they say, for years and years to come up with a new solution. For instance, the DREAM Act that we'll talk about briefly sort of had its origins and core core start in 2001. And it wasn't until 2012 that President Obama at the time issued an executive order. So basically the Democrats today are saying no more of this quid pro quo. 
what we're going to do is we're going to extend benefits without the balancing act of enforcement. So more carrot and less stick? If you want to call it that. Okay. Okay, there's a new wind blowing about immigration. The immigration agenda has always been top of mind, both for Democrats and Republicans, and was one of the top items in the former administration's to-do list. The big item was build the wall. And I don't think that uh, Joe Biden and his administration, President Biden, is not saying don't have enforcement at the border, but we should temper it with other other things to make this country more competitive. So, yeah, U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021 has a whole bunch of items in it, wish list, and we'll see how far it gets and where it goes. How would this administration deal with DACA going forward? So DACA is the Deferred uh, Action for Childhood Arrivals, which sort of has had stops and starts since 2012. And I don't think that President Trump really could pull the plug on DACA. He was pushed to say no more of this, and he didn't. But the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021 does have a provision that DACA applicants will be given a path to U.S. residence and ultimately citizenship. They've already started, you know, with orders through the Immigration Service, U.S. Citizenship Services, which issues benefits to foreign nationals to restore the issuance of employment authorization permits, renewed applications. So ultimately, I think there's over a million DACA applicants, at least on the books right now. Those people under the new law, if it passes, or they might just segregate that piece and ultimately issue a path to residence for those individuals. And you remember who DACA people are. They are young children. They were. They are now grown. The executive order was issued in 2012 by President Obama, as I mentioned. You had to be a child up to and between a certain age, young, having come to the United States, not of your own volition, but you find yourself here and you could apply for uh, special protection. So that will be the road to permanent residence and ultimately citizenship for that cohort, that group. And then there's another group that this administration is also proposing be granted permanent residence. That's the TPS. You know, these are little known provisions in the law that really are not the big picture for immigration, but grant huge benefits to populations that have been sitting and waiting for a long time. So TPS, temporary protected status, couple hundred thousand people total. Those are individuals who by various presidential proclamations and orders have been granted shelter in this country due to things like natural disaster. So think of Nepal and an earthquake, Honduras with, I think they had a hurricane, Haiti, you know, again with an earthquake. There are certain countries where you have those special benefits, Sudan, war, strife, and the U.S. and latest is Venezuela this year, where basically the administration says, okay, whoever's in the country now gets special status, temporary protected status, you can stay, you can work. And those people, that population is also in line if if approved to, to be granted a path to permanent residence so they don't have to go home. Some of these people have been living here for up to 20 years. You know, they have their lives, their right. families, their jobs. Been here for a long time. That's all fascinating. Let's shift the focus a little bit because I want to talk about, I know a lot of what you do is to deal with immigration in the business context. Right. So I want to talk about what are some challenges that businesses are facing in light of the pandemic? And what's the prognosis for change in that regard, if that question makes any sense? Right. So that question and the U.S. Citizenship Act 
also sort of dovetail with each other. The Biden administration is proposing that in addition to the pandemic issue and dealing with restrictions on travel, of increasing the benefit, the numbers for those people who are going to come to the United States under both the employment-based sponsorship categories and the family categories, expand and increase. And, you know, hopefully that will happen. Uh, For instance, you know, there's a small cohort, the diversity lottery visas. They want to increase that. Right now it's 55,000. Prior administration wanted to completely void that out. This administration wants to raise it and double it. So it just shows you the different attitudes of the various administrations. The business. Roxanne, what's the rationale for raising it? Well, the diversity lottery program has its origins in a change in the per country immigration rules established in 1965. And basically, Ted Kennedy and his group felt that the Irish weren't getting enough representation in terms of immigration. So they developed this diversity lottery program where people who had no other way of immigrating to the U.S. could come. So I didn't have a family member. I don't have a job, but I want to come to the United States. So let's say I'm from Vietnam and I have none of the connection or from somewhere in Africa. I can throw in a lottery application and I might win. And the philosophy behind that, the the raison d'etre, is really to bring diversity to this country from all corners of the world. Okay. But basically, so what the Biden administration is is suggesting, you need to undo, unwind our per-country limitations, increase the immigration numbers, change the family-based categories. This one, I think, was a huge oversight in the past. The spouse of a permanent resident might be stuck in a backlog on the quota and wait three to five years to immigrate. That doesn't make sense. And those types of things would be adjusted in a new act. In terms of current difficulty or challenges that U.S. businesses are facing, the first big thing they're facing uh, in terms of, of our world at this minute is the ability to enter the United States. There are right now several travel bans that were enacted due to pandemic, high unemployment rates, Those travel bans were instituted in 2020. President Biden has indicated he will do away with them, but he's not completely doing away with them yet because, again, the two-pronged approach, high unemployment, well, that's improving, but again, global pandemic. So he's not letting people rush into this country unless there's an assurance that the pandemic will, will subside and abate. So we still have a huge amount of ability to travel for all these uh, of people to come in. And the, right now, the travel bans expand to Europe and the Schengen countries, the United Kingdom, Ireland, Iran, and China and Brazil, which Brazil is having, you, you need to have special exception to come. You need to be involved in critical infrastructure. And the, the Department of Homeland Security actually has a list of what that includes, critical infrastructure. So unless you fit into one of those categories, I mean, you're not going to be able to make it. And by right. the way, I don't know if you know this, but Americans are not welcome in a lot of other countries these days. So we're barred just like they bar us. We bar them. <laughs> you and when you would ex- you would expect those restrictions back and forth, hopefully will ease up over time. A hundred percent. I mean, this is but we've been living with this for over a year and it, it just got tighter and tighter. And even though earlier in March, uh, the Biden administration relaxed some of the restrictions, they tightened others. So it's going to be, uh, you know, what, four, six more months before that changes? I'm not really sure. 
Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't think about it that much because I don't really think about going anywhere. I, I rarely leave my attic. A you're you're a lucky guy because my brain is just rattled with people traveling all over the world. And that's my life day and night. I need to come. I want to come. He, we need them here in the U.S. And one of the criteria now, which the consul and the consulates, by the way, which issue visas, the ability for people to enter have basically been closed and are slowly ramping up. So the ability to get a visa, a work visa, and enter has been stymied, let's just say. So, yeah, you may not think about leaving your attic, but a lot of people are. And the criteria they're saying to people, well, why can't you work remotely from Sweden or Finland or Israel or, you know, India? Why do you need to be in the U.S.? And that's a really good question, actually. You know, Are there vaccination-related travel restrictions that say you can go from X country to Y country, but only if you're vaccinated? So we have a requirement now. Anybody flying into the United States must have a negative COVID test taken within 72 hours of planned entry. I don't know if you know that, but... And every state has different rules about entry and exit, you know, what you have to do to quarantine. Canada, by the way, is one of the toughest at this point. I mean, it's very difficult to enter Canada. They have quarantine hotels. Right now, you have to go and stay in a hotel for three days. Then there's a quarantine requirement in a home and then constant testing. So we're not the only country doing this. Yeah, that's not, not, a, not a great job to run a hotel that is solely there to quarantine people. <laughs> it's a good, that's really good, Rich. I okay. like that. Rich, that's yeah. rich. I like that. that. Be, I'm going to pitch that to uh, one of the networks as a new show. The other item that's a big ticket item for our country, and I don't know if people realize it, is the foreign students. There were attempts by the prior administration to bar foreign students from coming or just tightening up the regulations to make it very difficult. And in the last five years, we've lost over 40, 50 percent of our foreign students at our universities and colleges. And you may not think that's a big deal, but it's huge because foreign students pay full freight for tuition. They basically support a lot of universities here. And not only that, they support the surrounding areas. They rent an apartment or they buy food. So there's been a, an attempt to reverse all that. Foreign students didn't have travel bans. Foreign, you know, there were certain accommodations given to foreign students. And we also want to welcome those foreign students if after they graduate, they decide to stay, they have the ability to get practical training and then options for various non-immigrant temporary worker visas. So that's another item that sort of goes under the radar the foreign students. But in fact, it's, it's a very important to contribute to our competitiveness in the global business and other markets. Right. And I would think that's even more important right now because I know universities are really challenged. There's been a diminishment of enrollment um, yeah. and massive financial challenges. And so to cut off a, just the revenue stream, the cut off a revenue stream like that would seem debilitating to me. Yeah, I mean, in the past few years, the foreign students were basically feeling like, you know, it's a we're closed sign is up at the airports and they were going to Canada, Great Britain and other places where they could would they would be much more welcome. Just to give you a Canada's population is about what, 30, 31 million people. I'm not in that range. And they've developed a very aggressive immigration program. They want to welcome three million new immigrants in the next couple of years. So that tells you that some countries are wide open, and I think this administration is seeking to do that, but is being held up a bit by this pandemic. Once that is handled and recovered, I think we're going to see some huge changes in the immigration world. Why don't you, uh, you've been with us before, but 
Can you remind us a little bit of the scope of your practice, what you do as an immigration lawyer for your clients? I'm happy to talk about what we do. So the immigration world, again, what we what I spoke about initially at the outset of our conversation is basically, you know, there's the enforcement arm and then there's the benefits arm. And our practice is engaged exclusively on securing benefits for U.S. companies. That can range from a bank or financial institution, cultural institutions, museums, engineering firms, chemical companies, law firms, securing the ability for foreign nationals to come and work here on a temporary basis, securing permanent residence for them, green cards, U.S. citizenship. And we also have a a family practice, people who marry U.S. citizens, filing for family, living outside the United States who want to immigrate to the United States. So in addition to dealing with Homeland Security and U.S. citizenship services here in the United States, we have a pretty robust consular practice. And we also deal daily with U.S. Customs and Border Protection at the airports when people have to enter the United States. So we're dealing with, you know, non-immigrant visas, immigrant green cards, citizenship, and very special citizenship situations, people who might want to relinquish U.S. citizenship, people who have green cards who want to live temporarily abroad, how to navigate that process. So that's the stream. We do not really handle deportation removal or much asylum. Some of that has been pro bono work in the past, but you know that's not our area of expertise. It's really the benefits side. All right. I appreciate that. So typically I ask for a closing argument, but here I have one in mind. I'm going to propose a closing argument and see if you agree with it. What do you think of that? Okay. I'm trying something new. As I listen to you talk about this, and you and I have talked before both on this program and just around the water cooler back when we would be around the water cooler together. Uh, I, I think the last couple of years have shown that your field, immigration law, more than almost any field of law I can think of, is susceptible to prompt change as a result of politics or as a result of changing circumstances, which certainly the last year has proven, and is susceptible of just quick, wide-scale change. Would you agree with that? So based on what you've seen in the last five or six years, I would say yes. But in general, our practice is sort of like tax law, sort of a sleepy practice. People never paid much attention, something no one really cared about. But then as a, a friend of mine has said to me, you know, Roxanne, when your practice area is on the front page of the newspaper every day, it's not a good thing. So I would say <laughs> in the last few years, yeah, it's been swift, rapid, and surprising. But on the whole, for the last 25 years that I've been doing this, I would say, no, it has never been like that fast moving. So I'm hoping that we have whiplash going up, you know, uh, opening up our borders, welcoming the foreign national, ho- hoping that they contribute in terms of their skill, talent, and flexibility to make this country the most competitive in the world. But, you know, yeah, the last few years have been like whiplash. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to share as a sort of summation of what's going on right now with immigration law, a takeaway? So I guess the only thing I tell people, which, you know, they say, oh, it's such an easy thing. Just fill out a form and file it. Well, it's never easy. It's sort of like the tax world in that sense. You know, you filled out your 1040 form and you file it. And then all of a sudden you have the IRS knocking on your door and auditing you and fining you. So 
I would say that the immigration laws in this country are much more complex than people presume. And it's not so simple. And it's not just filling out forms. There's a lot that goes into everything we do that takes a lot more time and attention to detail than, than one might think. All right. Thank you very much. Roxanne Levine, head of our immigration practice. Always great to talk to you about this subject matter. Thanks for being here. Rich, always great to talk to you. And thank you for having me today. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief.